Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long distance besties everywhere. I am Aminatu So. And I'm Ann Friedman. Hey. <laughs> hey. Oh my God. I'm so excited about this episode. I know. I'm super excited about this episode. There's one million things happening in the news we can't talk about because today we're talking about something we love, aka reading books. Ugh, I know. And in a way, I mean, I know we talk a lot about how it's impossible for us to keep up with the news cycle at this point in time, but that feels especially true this week. And so let's just take refuge in the pre-printed written word, <laughs> shall we? No, I know. <laughs> This is exciting. Like we, all three of us actually got to talk to a couple authors that we were excited about and, um, or, you know, like our books that we were reading right now that are pretty timely and that are out. They are all either just have come out in the past like two weeks or will be out uh, within the next two weeks. So are all like brand, brand new, all written by women we know and whose work I think most of us have admired for a long time. They have women at their core. I think that's like another big thing. Like a lot of these books are like really about a female experience. What else? What else am I missing? I mean, that's it. You know, women who read. All I'm thinking about now is that Zebra Cat song about reading. Do you know what I'm talking about? (laughs) Yes. Are you going to sing it? (laughs) Um, No, I'm not going to sing it because I have this awful cold slash I cannot sing. I think it was called She Reads. Man, what an early formative like song moment for us. I'm doing a Google right now. <laughs> Zebra cats. I'm a read. Yes. I'm a read. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> this song has nothing to do with reading actual books, but <laughs> it has everything to do with reading souls. I'm going to school that bitch. I'm going to take that bitch to college. I'm going to give that bitch some knowledge. I'm going to read, I'm going to read, I'm going to read. I'm going to read, I'm going to read, I'm going to read. But we'll use it for our purposes here. Exactly. Which is, which are literal. I'm a read. Our literal and literary purposes. (laughs) Real talk. So the first author that I talked to is Helene Cooper, who is a reporter at the New York Times. It's actually like full circle. I've been reading her like forever and ever and ever because forever and ever and ever, she was the only person that like kind of wrote about Africa in the Times at all. It was her and Lydia Polgreen. (laughs) And so, you know, it's like when you care about that part of the world, like the byline jumps at you. Uh, Anyway, she wrote this like great book called Madam President, The Extraordinary Journey of Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, who is, as you know, the woman president in Liberia who has like a really fascinating just life and journey. And so it was cool to talk to her about what the parallels were with the kind of political moment that we're having here. But also like, you know, it's like Ellen Johnson Surly, if it's not all uh, like everything's not on the up and up over there. So it's also fascinating to see like how you can build your own like public mythology or whatever and not go challenged because she really is kind of the wet dream of like a technocrat and like, you know, it's like if the IMF and all these other world organizations like dreamed up like who should be an African president, it would actually be this woman. A complicated (laughs) figure. Exactly. A really complicated figure. 
but also like you know african countries been having women presidents forever and ever and ever like this is great read the book like learn something about a different part of the world and do other stuff here's me talking to helene Helene Cooper, thank you so much for uh, chatting with me about your um, fantastic book out, Madam President. I was so, so struck by reading this book because it hits really close to home for me. Ellen Johnson Sirleaf is the first democratically you know, elected female president in African history. Some say it would never happen. And to our delight, it happened in Africa faster than it happened in some countries. <laughs> um, we won't, we won't really, we won't really name names. Your gift for understatement is is remarkable. I know, right? I'm like, I won't even get into the fantastic New York Times piece that you wrote about this. You know, in your own words, like, what do you think her legacy and really lasting contribution to feminism is? Because I think that in that context. It's something that um, firsts are something that we think about a lot. And here is a woman that has had outsized impact on her country and a continent and really in the way that we think about female leadership. I think she is going to have an outsized legacy when it comes to feminism, both in micro ways and in macro ways. Micro, it would be you walk into any elementary school now in Liberia and you go talk to uh, an eight or nine year old girl and she's going to tell you that she can be president. She's going to tell you that she, you know, many of them will tell you that she will be president. And I can tell you enough just how big a deal that is just the 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 just opening up the world to these young young women and the opportunity that they have now to dream and to dream big um so i think that's huge on the macro level i think what she represents is Af- the african women that you guys and i all know of these are the market women that basically carry that continent on their backs. Any African country you go to, you're going to see the women on the sides of the roads with the, you know, making markets, selling their oranges, selling their nuts, selling Maggie bullion cubes. They're going to be the ones farming the fields. They're going to be the ones making, you know, what commercial money there is to be made. And what Ellen Johnson Sirleaf represents is the realization by these women that they can turn that economic power that they've always had because they've been the ones doing the work into political power. And I think that is equally huge. You know, one thing that I was so struck by is just how both inspiring and heartbreaking her story is at the same time, you know, just like going from just being an ordinary kind of Liberian mother of um, four boys to an international banker, which, you know, in and of itself, it's like that's living 10 lives. I was really struck by also just the candidness around the domestic violence that she's encountered and how open she was to talking about that. Mm-hmm. That took time. She wasn't initially open about it. And I think, and uh, she doesn't actually like talking about it. I kept coming back to it and coming back to it. And her response, well, this will sound, sound familiar to you, but and it's kind of heartbreaking as well. She kept saying, I don't want to talk too much about the domestic violence because I have sons and this is their father and I don't want to sound like I'm criticizing their father. He's dead now. And I'm like, but your sons are 55 and 60 years old. You know, and she's like, yeah, but this is still their dad. But at the same time, you know, she recognizes the fact that so many women across the world go through domestic violence and she has to talk about it because she's an example of how you can come out of it. And, you know, in many ways, I think it's far more important for her to 
understand as that example than to protect her 60 year old sons right it's like seeing how her own personal story just fits into this larger narrative of what's going on with liberian women and what's going on with west african women and really women everywhere yeah it it really it, it very much is i mean she was she got buried early. She had children. She had all four boys before she was 21 years old. Uh, and she had to give them up so she could go to college. And that's one of those choices that women for decades have had to make, children or career. And she went for career, but she still carries that guilt around to the point that she talks about it all. You know, she's still talking about a choice that she made when she was 21. And she still feels bad about it, which even in the middle of the Ebola epidemic, I was interviewing her about Ebola. And she came it was kind of heartbreaking. She came back to to reminiscing about the fact that her youngest son, Adama, doesn't have any godparents because she was away, you know, at school when he was of the age that he would have been christened. And that kind of stuff, you it just made me think women carry so much unseen baggage with them. You know, here is a Nobel Peace Prize winner, president of Liberia. This woman has done so much. We're sitting in the middle of an Ebola epidemic and she is agonizing over something that happened 60 years ago, you know, when she wasn't able to baptize her son. Yeah, you know, and um, I'm I'm glad that you brought up the Ebola crisis, because I think that in some way, it's, um, it is one of the kind of big pushbacks and, you know, and, and criticism that she gets is that on one hand, Liberian women through their like sheer force brought her to power. It's like, I remember that 2005 election so much. It's like, she's running against this very popular soccer player. All of the men want to vote for the soccer player in the, in some ways. You're it's from like, Guinea. You should be saying football now. I What's know. Well, you know, American podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, do, do you love the idea of uh, her running against like an NFL player though? That would be kind of amazing. That would be amazing. But you know, so, but seeing kind of the response, the really sluggish response to the Ebola crisis and the overall neglected health systems and education you know, like, how do you respond to some of these criticisms that she is failing the same women who really uplifted her? I, I help make these criticisms, so I don't feel like I need to be uh, Well, how do you think that she would um, respond she, to them? She would say that she's had a lot on her plate, and she would absolutely agree with you that the health system in Liberia is failing. But this is also a country that's come that came out of 14 years civil war that was apocalyptic, you know, so it's got a long way to go. She definitely was in denial at the beginning of the Ebola, the Ebola crisis. And I think she was so focused on trying to bring in more foreign investment and development to Liberia that she was hoping that if she ignored Ebola, it would go away. And it didn't. To her credit, she responded when she finally got her stuff together, she responded to it to it far more aggressive than either Guinea or Sierra Leone, which is why Liberia came out of the Ebola crisis far faster than either Guinea or Sierra Leone. And that is in large part to the fact that Liberians were going crazy. I mean, she is allowed, and that's because of her, she allowed all this freedom of speech and freedom of the press in Liberia. So Liberians hold their government to account in a way that a lot of other African, West African countries do not. So they, you turn on the radio during the Ebola crisis in Liberia and people were going 
going nuts. And they were, you know, they were absolutely, they were calling for her to resign. There were people saying that she should step aside. And she responded really quickly because the people, and that's like, so in a lot of ways, because of the freedom of press and freedom of, the, of speech that she opened up in Liberia, she was held more accountable and she reacted. She got around to reacting sooner than I think the president's, her counterparts in Guinea and Sierra Leone did. What's one thing you think that we don't know about her that we should? She's funny. She has a subversive sense of humor that is actually hilarious. Anybody who meets her for her at first is going to come away thinking that she's really reserved. Um, she's, she's, she's a little, she seems, she doesn't want anybody to touch her. She's, she'll give you her hand, but she's not doing that hugging and kissing that we like to do in West Africa <laughs> on meeting people. Um, you know, she comes across as sort of, but once you start talking to her, and this came from when I first started interviewing her for the book, because I've lived in America, the United States, I'm from Liberia originally, but I've lived in the United States, as had she, I started interviewing her in American English because I was coming across on this New York Times reporter. I want to show my journalistic credential. I, I don't know. I was being very formal and she was answering me formally in American English. And it wasn't until I switched one day by accident to Liberian English that she all the walls came tumbling down. And then I was like, oh my God, she's hilarious. And when you break down those walls, she's very, very funny. She has a slick sense of humor. And I don't think a lot of people realize that. That makes me deeply, deeply, deeply happy more than <laughs> anything else around her. Because there's such, a, there's such a mythology around her, you know, and I think that yeah. also just this not giving, um, especially like powerful women who are in public, just that this... Let them you know, be human. Yeah, just let them be human. I know. I mean, there was so many... Once we started talking, there was some, in Liberian English, there were so many things she would tell me that I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe she's telling me this. And I'd be trying to take notes in a slick, slick way, but not, I don't want her to, you know, stop talking about stuff. I mean, she told me about dating her husband when she first met him and they had sex before marriage. And, you know, at the honeymoon, they had to pretend that she was a virgin and he's like slitting his wrist to put blood on the sheets and all this <laughs> stuff that, that is like totally, Everybody goes through this, you know, it was a totally, I could just, you know, I could see this. And she's like, he, he, he. And I'm, you know, I'm like, okay, this is, <laughs> this, this, you know, Nobel Peace Prize winner, president. And a lot of that stuff comes across once you start, once you start chatting to her. I really, that, that makes me really happy, you know. And I think, too, just this, this thing that you touched on earlier about, young women just seeing her and thinking about their own possibilities and their their own yeah. abilities and really what we can achieve. I think that it is remarkable that this happened in Africa, but also African women are the backbone of the entire world. And so it's not surprising, you know, that she comes from that. They really are. It deep, makes deep me, it made me so proud. It was like after years of like watching the wars in Liberia and throughout West Africa, and every time Liberia was on the news, it was something horrific. And then all of a sudden, I'm in New York at my job at the Sailing New York Times, and um, <laughs> uh, to see my Liberian women do something that American women hadn't done yet, I, I was incandescently proud. That makes me really happy. Helene Cooper, thank you so much for joining me today. Can't wait to see what's next for you. Thank you so much for having me. That was so great. When uh, when is Madam President out, Amina? Uh, it's currently out right now. Came out March 7th. So uh, put that shit in your Amazon cart. Or yes. if you're a good person, go to your independent bookstore and buy it. 
The next author I spoke with is the president's problematic daughter. Just kidding. Um, it's definitely not. <laughs> that is not. The ne- I started that is not gasping. A- I started gasping. <laughs> no, um, I, sorry. I just gave you a heart attack. For real, though, the next writer I spoke with is Amelia Gray, who is a Los Angeles-based novelist. She had a collection of short stories come out last year, maybe the year before, called Gutshot, which I really liked, and a novel before that called Threats, which um, I think one thing that she does really well is write the kind of like internal experience of a character who's going through something really difficult and really, really kind of like goes deep on the psyche. And she told me recently she was sick of being described as an absurdist, but she's also one of my favorite absurdists. So she really is the best. Her latest novel is, I feel justified in calling it epic because it is sprawling and based on the life of Isadora Duncan, who is credited by most people as the mother of the modern dance movement. So like a huge creative innovator, but also just this woman who was larger than life and very, very much ahead of her time and super modern. And a lot of the things that she goes through, I mean, she had kind of a tragic life, particularly the period that Amelia writes about. But I, I was just shocked reading it, how, how modern she feels as a figure and, and how modern a lot of the, the things that she struggles with also feel. So here's me chatting with Amelia Gray about her epic novel, Isadora. Hi, Amelia. Hi, Anne. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me here. So for those of us who haven't perused the Wikipedia page, mm. can you give me the like your, the new Wikipedia version of who was Isadora Duncan? Isadora Duncan was, they call her the mother of modern dance. She was born in Oakland, California, and uh, was teaching dance when she was eight years old. She came to Chicago and then New York and then to London. She kind of had her family trailing behind her as sort of comet tail as she she was kind of an ingenue. She gave lectures in Berlin on the future of dance, the future of movement. She was obsessed with Nietzsche. She was a very serious young lady and became a, a very serious woman. And then she... She lived a really extraordinary, unusual, strange life. She had a series of of lovers. She was connected with Gordon Craig. He was the son of Ellen Terry, the actress, and he was a set designer, and they had a child together. She had a child with Paris Singer, who was the son of Isaac Singer, the sewing machine magnate, who had 24 children, and the two of them had, wow. their, had their own child. <laughs> yeah, She inserted herself in the center of this turn-of-the-century drama and generated about 70% of it. And... Um, <laughs> In 1912, when she was 37 years old, her her two children drowned in an accident in the in the Seine, and then from there she kind of spun out and continued on a series of paths that she had kind of laid for herself. I mean, aside from the globe trotting, meeting every famous person of her time, child prodigy aspects of her, one of the things that I had to keep reminding myself when I was reading it was just the date in terms of like, you know, this is an era when the language around like women's autonomy and women's choices was just not there. And she's like, you know, I had to keep reminding myself she's making these choices at a time when like 
other people are not doing this, even right. among her kind of artsy socialite class. Right, right. In the era that I'm looking at, the word boyfriend wasn't around. Uh, you know, there was this really weird, like, post-Victorian, pre 20s kind of austerity that was starting to break down and would be pretty broken by World War I, but she had no interest in conventional rules and the reasons for that are are many i assume she you know mostly she, they suck yeah <laughs> right 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 i i don't know i think a lot about you know what put her in a place to kind of feel brave to flaunt these rules but i think she always she had a north star of her own for her whole life yeah like if you can invent a style of dance you can invent your own way of living yeah really, right? i think that's very accurate yeah. um so but your book is not a biography right Right. It's, a, it's, it's a work of fiction. It's a work of fiction. <laughs> so, so I mean, without without you know going line by line, what is the difference here, and where did you where did you leap off into your own realm? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, so Isadora is an interesting challenge. It was like I want to take a singular character who's larger than life, the kind of woman who will swap out a chair in a restaurant because she wants to properly pose, and I wanted to surround her with kind of the people that had to manage that and witness it and interact with it and love it, you know, that persona. Who were regular life size, not like larger than life Indeed, size. Yeah. yeah. And who had regular life size concerns. Sure. I l- realized really quickly I needed to have those kind of foils or else she would just spin off stage and, <laughs> and shoot into the stratosphere. Um, so how much did you care about, I mean, I know that the the biggest plot points of the book about the death of her children and, you know, geographically where she was spending time, all of those things are, you know, match up with the reality of her life. Where were the gaps or where did you, you know, deliberately say, oh, I'm going to write this differently than maybe I know what happened? So, so I have, there are, you know, a, a bunch of great, real biographies of Isadora and a lot of great writing and and a few people who still teach her style and who are really super fans and I've talked to them all and it's great but what I did to write the book is I drew from her autobiography which nobody thinks is real like is it was clearly even when she was writing it fictionalized she had she wanted it to be sensational. She wanted to control the narrative and she wanted it to be larger than life and perfect and beautiful. So there's a scene where in the autobiography where she encounters a stranger on the beach in Vareggio in Italy. And he says, is there anything I can do to help you? And she says, save more than my life. Save my reason. Give me a child. <laughs> Just you know, So pretty low key. Absolutely. Very casual understanding. <laughs> and nobody believes that is true. And I love that. So what I, so I did is I drew from the fiction of her life first. And instead of I, I kind of took the broadest points of her of the real life to kind of just place her spatially. And then within that was like, you know, she has this story of, of going to, um, to Constantinople to, um, Aestefanos uh, to save a man who was uh, in danger of of dying by his own hand. It's just these ludicrous stories mm-hmm. that um, that I I was like, all right, you know, let's as if, if that's the story, let's sketch it out. Let's see what it looks like. When you read about totally self directed artists mm-hmm. um, who are women from like the past, I mean, hundred years, I mean even fairly recently, I think this holds true, they all come across as selfish assholes. Because in order to devote anything to your art beyond like 
keeping home and house and whatever right. is is just so outside right. the norm. Right, right. Yeah. I think there was a lot of complicated feelings after the children died that, you know, Isidore kind of explores a little bit. And that I think comes from a place of being a really singular-minded, self-interested, narcissist kind of artist, which right. artists are, <laughs> I think. You know, right. I, I'm not going to spend four years writing a book if I don't have a pretty big ego about my thoughts and feelings. <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> so, so what made you, I mean, I don't know. I think of you as one of my favorite absurdists. Oh, and you. so what, what made you want to write something that's rooted in historical fact? I was really nervous about losing the absurd element or saying like, okay, this isn't, you know, this isn't got shot. This isn't a short story where somebody's ripping off their skin. And then my editor said, you know, wow, you really brought so much of your, of that absurd sense into this. This is so surprising. And I totally agree with your editor. <laughs> yes. Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was a total divergence and I was trying for it, you know, taking the left turn so that I don't feel like I'm, I'm, on the on a path in a rut in yeah. a rut right mm-hmm. oh my god actually and it's interesting you say that because i wrote a series of three stories about ruts and there's a character <laughs> who's literally in a rut in the book yeah <laughs> i think that's not a mistake <laughs> i just yeah wow well, i mean but it, it also i mean i don't know as as sort of um you know I I I take a lot of hope from the notion that okay even when you are challenging yourself or even like when someone as a creator is trying to go way outside their zone like that there are still threads there are right. still things that connect them and you're like I would have read that book and like in an instant identified it in a lineup as yours like oh, you yeah. know next to <laughs> next to many others which I think yeah. is like is actually something that a lot of creative people really worry about like mm. they don't step outside because they're like well then who would I be right um, right you and, work very hard you know to build this kind of the sense of yourself the cynical way to put it is brand artistically cynical but like it's a real concern as well if if who am i if i'm not writing about the body what does it mean to write about about this character in this time about me mm-hmm. <laughs> you know there's always this additional what does it say about me what does it say but what does it say about me? what does isadora say about you oh my god and sometimes in my I'm most sorry, I no up. no no i am in my most annoying thought experiments i'm like what would isadora want you know or what would she think about all this i she would i think she would i think she would love it but have a number of notes about my, my thoughts yeah well i actually wanted to ask too about like dance as a practice and Mm. whether you got more interested in Mm -hmm. that while you were working on this or whether it was just merely kind of a backdrop. Right. Because you know me well enough to know that I am not a dancer. (laughs) (laughs) But I know you to be enthusiastic about the proposition. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. I, I um, had no knowledge of dance beyond the wonderful Colin McCann book dancer. (laughs) It got me, um, thinking about movement arts and the interesting ephemerality of it when it's not like Isadora there's there's five seconds of her video um on this planet and she didn't like it and and didn't want to have any um recorded sense of her dancing because she was really into the ephemerality of it that it would die with her but that 
her students and her students' students would would like propagate the earth with her style. I think it speaks to a larger ephemerality that like, I think the rest of us artists are kind of fooling ourselves about, you know, <laughs> like, um, like Marcus Aurelius says that soon you'll die and the people who read you will die. <laughs> and it's just like, okay. And then it's really over. <laughs> and then it's it. That's it. You know, and then books will be meaningless and like maybe, maybe sooner than you think. But also part of her and not to be like, let me inject a note of optimism because I like, I mean, but I kind of am that person. Her philosophy is all one movement leads to the next and yeah. that you can't plan really right. like, you know, you can start something, but you can't know exactly where it will end up. If I'm, if I'm getting that correct. Right, right, right. So I don't know, the same thing sort of applies here, I think, whereas, um, you know, sure, maybe the book dies when everyone who's read it is dead too, <laughs> but like, presumably some of those ideas seeded themselves and are yeah. moving in different ways now. Oh, that's interesting. I never thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> that is quite optimistic. Very good, very good. Very good. No, yeah. <laughs> um, I did also take, I have to I have to brag, I took two Isadora Duncan dance classes oh in San Francisco. What was that like? At the Mary Sano Dance Studio. Well, Mary Sano, who is a Isadora fourth generation scholar, her teacher's teacher was Irma Duncan, whose teacher was Isadora. Oh, wow. I know. So, see, look, it carries it carries on it does and and she had uh, unlimited levels of respect for Isadora and the class was three and a half hours and a big amount of it was just reading Dionysian texts <laughs> she was she was really interested in Isadora's like you study you read you consider sculpture there's Isadora would do a lot of sketching mm. um and then from there, it's like you you start with the with the body and mind, and then you move the body. And it was um, it was wild. It was very like a lot of small movements, um, a lot of me attempting to look graceful while running. Uh, <laughs> there was a lot of like like it, it's it's like you cross the stage and you you hold your arm back to uh, invite the others along. <laughs> it was just very very playful. I, I don't know. What I learned is like she, though she worked extemporaneously, I I think, and she didn't like to write down choreography. There was a ton of it, and her students would write it down, and it was a strange like. Um, um, there, there are maybe eighty dances of hers which exist in written choreography, huh. um, which dance choreography is its own thing, and I feel like I. I spent a good, goodly amount of time wondering if I could get it into the book textually mm -hmm. um, because it's wild and I love it. And it's like nothing I, it's like, a, it's like a different dimension of reading in some way, but um, I couldn't figure it out. So thanks, Amelia. High fives. High fives. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I can't wait to read it. When is it out? It's out May 23rd. So this is one that you've got to pre-order, but um but coming out super soon. And uh, yeah, get into it.
favorite producer, Gina Delvac, also talked to somebody. Gina, tell us all about the book that you are reading right now. I'm reading Grace and the Fever by Zan Romanoff. This is Zan's second young adult novel. And in addition to being just a delightful trip through a bunch of teenage feelings of longing, desire, angst, love of pop music, I also had the pleasure of sitting down with Zan, who is one of my teenage besties. Appropriately, we sat in my bedroom on my bed and had a little chat. Zan, thanks for coming on Call Your Girlfriend. Um, thank you for having me. Can you give us like the elevator pitch on this book? It has some real life dimensions, but it's primarily fiction. Yeah, so it's about a girl who is obsessed with this boy band, um, and in particular is obsessed with a conspiracy theory that two uh, members of this boy band are dating each other. And she runs into one of the members of the boy band on the street one night, gets photographed with him, and gets sort of drawn into the band's complicated lives, and discovers that they are that the band has a lot of secrets, um, many of which she did not ever suspect. And suspicion and creating theories around this band is sort of her life, her secret life online. Yeah, yeah. She has been a fan of them for a number of years at this point. Um, and almost no one in her sort of offline, like she's sort of famous online or she's wellish known online for being a fan and for being a conspiracy theorist. And no one in her real life even knows she likes them. So in Grace and the Fever, one of Grace, the protagonist, the title character, her obsession is with this idea of Lolly, which is a relationship between two of the band members, Land and Solly, which has kind of a real life analog in the Harry Styles, Louis Tomlinson, Harry Stylison, Larry. Larry, Larry, Larry Stylinson. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. These two members of One Direction, um, who many people IRL believe have been dating one another since they were on X Factor. Um, well, I'm gonna get in trouble. I don't know how long. Uh, anyway, a number of years now. Talk to me a little bit about fandom, because one of my favorite elements of this book is that you use the nuanced and specific language of the internet. We have texts distinct from Snapchats, distinct from Tumblr posts, and these many voices from many characters. What made you decide to do this in such a specific contemporary version of the internet, which could also kind of give some limited time to how relevant this is to teens today or teens of the future. In this case, I decided to go for it because I felt like I, I have spent a lot of time in internet fandom, specifically Tumblr-centric fandom, which is, the I would say, the current iteration of it. And I felt like I knew it really well, and I, I knew that I could pull it off pretty accurately. One of the best things that I've heard is people who are also in fandom emailing me when they get to like the first like Tumblr post in the book, and they're like, oh my god, like you got it. This could be on the internet. I'm like, yes! So I like more or less grew up in fandom. My first fandom was Hanson, like circa 1997. I was like reading and writing fan fiction. And then, you know, that evolved into like, I read some Harry Potter fic and whatever on from there. So I've been in that community for, or I've known about that community. I've been sort of a lurker in that community for a long time. But the thing that pushed me to want to write about it was the specific, like you said, modern iteration and the, the sort of meta story, storytelling narrative that happens when people are getting all these different pieces of information about a celebrity's life. You know, you've got like the official narrative that's happening from their publicist and sort of the like gossip magazines. And then below that you have their, you know, their Twitter, Tumblr, Snapchat, Instagram. And then you've got all these theories that people are like essentially making up, but that then celebrities hear about and have to respond to. 
And like, I was just obsessed with the way that I would read these Tumblr posts and girls were like close reading, largely girls were close reading Harry Styles Twitter as if it was like an academic text. And so, yeah, it was a response to something very specific in the culture right now. And I felt like I was willing to sacrifice some long term relevancy for being really clear on like what I was responding to. And also I do, I mean, having been in fandom for a long time, I can say that like, you know, the tech changes, the emotions remain, <laughs> and I, I think will remain recognizable, hopefully. <laughs> well, and to that end, in these different voices, one of the characters, so Grace is our protagonist. She's um, a high schooler about to leave for college. And so this is sort of like her big coming of age summer as she gets drawn into the lives of these celebrities, these band members. There's also this great best friend character, her internet bestie, Katie, who is this kind of intriguing voice of older feminism. What was it? Did you did you have a Katie in your life of early fandom? Or is that just sort of like, you know, contemporary 30s Zan kind of talking to the youngsters of like, here are things that are also okay to feel and understand? Sort of both. So I, in my younger fandom days, did not have any fandom friends at all. Like, did not really talk to anyone, was just like lurking quietly. And like, didn't talk to anyone online or IRL about what I was doing. But I, but like a couple of years ago now was when I first started getting interested really in fandom again in a, in a more serious way. And I met a girl named Verity, who I've become very close with, who has been a little bit my like fandom fairy godmother. <laughs> and it's been really good to like talk through a lot of this stuff with. So definitely like there, I consciously when I was writing Katie, I was like, oh, Verity, <laughs> although she's the same age as I am. <laughs> but it is also true that it's very helpful when you're writing a book about teens and you are 30 to be able to, to insert some some sort of sense of like, here's what I wish I could tell you very much here's some stuff that like there's no way this teen character would realize but she really needs to hear i probably as an adult should be embarrassed by how much you and i loved the movie high fidelity when we were in our early to mid-teens and something we haven't mentioned is that we've known each other since you were 13 and i was 14 and kind of grew up together so the way that you write being a teen girl the things that you think about going to concerts, these kind of like formative social experiences and how obsessions over a particular crush can bring friendships together. This is the Zan I've been talking to my whole life in the voice that's in Grace, not to conflate your fiction with your real life. But but so we were obsessed with this movie, High Fidelity, which, like I said, I should probably be embarrassed about. And there's a part where the record store owner, Rob, who's played by John Cusack, asks himself, was he miserable because he listened to pop music or did he listen to pop music because he was <laughs> miserable? <laughs> which I always thought was kind of off because pop music can be so insanely and utterly joyful, which is something you capture really well. How did you think about Grace's emotions and the way she was transported by this band and the part that was her fan self that kind of presaged this getting involved in the whole conspiratorial world of the band? Yeah, so I don't listen to music when I write. Um, I mean, like I'll write in coffee shops so like music is playing, but I don't like, I'm not a person who like needs it in my ear while I'm writing, but I will like, I'll walk around a lot when I'm writing a book. And I spent so much time while I was writing this book, walking around, listening to One Direction, just like hours and hours and hours. I was, I was, I was definitely kind of a One Direction fan when I started writing the book and like, Writing it completely transformed my relationship to the band and their music. You know, I wasn't having Grace's experience of like meeting Harry Styles and like, or, you know, whatever, and any boy band member, Taylor Hansen for that matter. But I was definitely having intensively that feeling of just like longing and the way that it is 
both kind of miserable and so thrilling to just like to want something so badly. So yeah, that was the part of the book I, I related to far and away the most is of, of like listening to something that just like, boy, does it make you feel stuff. <laughs> this is a young adult novel. You've written a fair amount, not in your fiction, in your kind of essay writing life about the ways that people think about or understand both teens and young adult writing in general. What got you interested? Because your style is, um, you don't write down. There's a lot that's really nuanced and beautiful and in your previous novel as well, that this is really literary fiction that is about teenagers. How did you come to that? And do you think that there's more of this in YA than perhaps some adult readers know is going on? Yes, definitely. So much more beautiful writing going on in YA than like anyone has any idea about. You know, I, I love people who are writing sort of like literary fiction for teens. I also will say that I don't think it has to be literary fiction to be valuable, or it doesn't have to sound like literary fiction to be valuable. You know, one of the things I love about YA is that there is, there's often a sort of different voice to it. It's a really fun voice. And as a writer, I happen to know, or like for me anyway, it's very hard to do that compelling light sort of voicey thing where you're not like writing, you know, six sentence descriptions of the sunset or whatever it is that, you know, I'm always sort of padding my stuff with, or I feel like. But in terms of how I decided, like, I would never say that I decided to write anything. This is such a like shitty, like, I'm an artist answer. Um, you know, but I can only write what's interesting to me. And what I'm interested in is teenagers. And what I'm interested in is flowery descriptions of sunsets. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, and of like, of, and of feelings. I mean, I th think that um, people act like sort of subtlety is the only interesting thing about art that like the subtlety of literary fiction is you know and the subtlety of adult emotion is sophisticated in some way and I think I really enjoy writing about like a big embarrassing feelings <laughs> and giving them the same kind of care and attention that they get in other you know that other kinds of feelings get. Something that's interesting that you touch on in Grace and the Fever that is when people who are not involved at all in fandom kind of like take a peek or are very curious about is the culture of shipping of like imagining relationships between characters but also specifically professedly heterosexual men in homosexual relationships how overblown do you think some of that is and then what made you interested in kind of riffing off of this in a fictional work um I don't know that I would say it's overblown. I There's this sense that teenage girls are hungry for a particular kind of fantasy, but I'm always interested in saying, yes, also like someone is aggressively creating and marketing that fantasy for them. You know, this is not in a vacuum. <laughs> this is what's being made available. And one of my favorite, oh my God, one of my favorite things about One Direction fandom is the transformative works that people make. Um, so there's this like <laughs> clip from a video. I don't know. It's like, I think it's from a music video. It's like Louis Tomlinson walking down a hall and he's, you know, singing something. Um, but someone has slowed it all the way down and set it to um, Beyonce's baby boy and turned this like sort of cute pop clip into this very sexy like slow-mo walk. <laughs> and I'm just like, I'm like, yeah, because we're being given like cute clean cut pop star. And these girls are like, no, I want to fuck him. <laughs> and it's just such a beautiful, I mean, like, this is my other thing about fandom, right? Is like all this talk about like, oh, women aren't that sexual. Like women aren't that interested in sex. It's like, do you know what a lot of teenage girls have been doing as a hobby? Writing porn for each other for free. Like, <laughs> that's like their favorite thing to do. <laughs> like, 
It's so funny. People make so much fun of it. They're like, oh my God, fandom. It's so dumb. And I'm like, it's fucking radical. There's an interesting quality of this book too on a meta level, which is that we have a young woman, huge fan of the band, writes about these fantastical versions of their relationships to one another. There's also another very interesting fandom trope, which is that the protagonist of your story meets and falls in love with the band themselves. So I would venture that in a way, like you wrote a fiction that's a fic. (laughs) What do you think your 11-year-old Hanson fanfic writing uh, self would think about? grace in this book (laughs) like i'm not exaggerating or i am not exaggerating when i say that every day i sat down to write this book i was cackling to myself (laughs) i was like zan romanoff you have played the greatest trick in the entire world (laughs) like you're gonna get paid to write fan fiction you did it (laughs) you did the dream thanks for coming on cyg um thank you so much for having me (laughs) uh thanks gina that was so good love zan love people who respect the like female fan experience and like boy bands as a legitimate cultural phenomenon that book's out may 16th yes um and finally who else did you talk to amina i talked to a friend of the podcast dory shafrir about her novel startup a novel which is honestly and so it's a book about startups obviously and technology (laughs) but it's great it was so much better than anything I've read like in this realm ever at all. It was really funny. Like if you want like a really good, like fun read, like something that'll take you like a day or two, but that is also surprising and LOL Lolio goes deep into an industry that you think is completely absurd. Like this is the book for you. What I loved about this book is that it feels like you're reading like the juiciest, dishiest piece of journalism. Like, because I mean, I think maybe I I have that lens because I know that Dory is such a great journalist, but like it's fiction. So you don't have to worry about, (laughs) you don't have to worry about all the implications. You can just go into that world completely. It's so good. I know. But if you work in tech, you're going to be like, is this a documentary? What is happening? (laughs) (laughs) I definitely have those moments. Yes. Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, Dory Shafrir. Thank you so much for having me, Amina Tussaud. <laughs> I, first of all, I want to tell you that I read this book in 1.5 sittings. Oh my God. Honestly, I was really surprised by it, Dory. Like, obviously, I knew that you're a great writer, and but I just had this like tech insight that it's easily, uh, tech is really easily parodied, but I thought it was really sensitive and like sensible and funny. Thank you. So tell me everything. How did you get the idea to write the book? So it all started at the end of 2014. At the time I was uh, executive editor at BuzzFeed and just managing and editing all the time and really missed writing. And so I was like, okay, 2015 is starting. I'm going to make a New Year's resolution that I'm going to write every day in January in the morning for an hour and just see what comes out. Like kind of like artist way style. By the way, I love the artist way. I also <laughs> um, love the artist way. So yes, I'm here yeah, with you. <laughs> so you get it. And so I did that. And I really never thought I was going to write a novel. I had, I had kind of vaguely thought like, maybe one day I'll write a screenplay, but I never thought I would write a novel. But I just sort of started writing. And I think because I had given myself the freedom to just write with no expectation and no like, I am going to write a novel that will sell like it was just for me. 
that I feel like better stuff came out. And then at the end of the month, I had 60 pages. So that was kind of the logistics of how I started. And then wow, artist way really working out here. <laughs> totally, totally. Now the artist way does say you should write in longhand, which I did not do. Um, I, I used my computer. I was like, Julia, I love you. But like, <laughs> that's yeah. a little extreme. But in terms of the kind of like the overall themes of the book, there's a lot of like issues of gender and sexual harassment in the book. And so if you remember at that time, the Whitney Wolf Tinder situation. Oh, had yeah. Just, when she got harassed yeah. out of Tinder and into yes. starting her own company. Exactly. So she had just settled that suit in November of 2014, just like a couple months before I started the book. I was like really shook by that whole situation. Like if you read the text messages that she got from Sean Rad, they were disgusting and horrible. And I was like, wow, this is how this is how men treat women in this brave new world of technology. <laughs> and I don't know why I was so shocked by it, but I was like truly shocked. So that had happened. And then also in February of 2015, the Ellen Powell Kleiner Perkins trial started. And that was another thing where I was like, oh my God, like this shit is still going on. And then she lost the trial. Yeah. And that freaked me out also so I was like huh I want to write about this in a way that feels accessible and I also want to set it in New York because that's in part in part because that's where I'm familiar with but also because there hasn't really been anything set in the New York tech world yeah I mean I think that that's honestly like one of the things that I enjoyed about it so much right is that you transpose Silicon Valley basically and uh Silicon Alley like all these terms I hate um, yeah <laughs> it's like welcome to Manhattan like the building is like imminently recognizable from your uh from the cover so that made me laugh totally a lot but i thought that you know it was really interesting to put it in this kind of like grittier not as respected as silicon valley plays but really trying to like you know really trying to do it that's not to say new york startups don't exit at ridiculous amounts before anybody gets to me about this whatever this is a fight that we have a lot in technology, but I really appreciated that you did that. And I think that the point that you made too about making it accessible, I don't know, I was so struck by the the format of the book, you know, and like seeing text messages and seeing kind of the the way that we interact with each other that in parts it was really, not that it was hard to read, but it was jarring where I was like, wow, yeah. this is very, like, this is very of the moment. And I think that yeah. for somebody like me who like works at a tech company for a long time was just, I was like, wow, where... You know, some of the makeup, the the made up apps that you have. I was like, wow, did Dory make that up or is that really real? Right. <laughs> <laughs> At one point, it was just all blending into each other. Yeah, and totally. That's the, you know, I was like, wow, like, yes, this world is like very easily parodied. But also there is something about it that is so profoundly just like sad and hilarious at the same time. Yes. That I think you captured really well. Thank you. Um, what has the uh, what are the people saying about it? <laughs> so it's gotten it's gotten like a really great reception so far. Kirkus reviews, which is like a trade publication for the publishing industry, wrote that it was a feminist satire that is addictive as it is biting. Yeah, which, <laughs> which I just loved. 
And then I think it was Kirkus also that had this line that I was like, oh, you got it, um, which was something like Shafrir renders even the most infuriating characters with unexpected humanity. It's true. That's so true. Uh, I can't wait for like the technology people to read this. They're always behind on like actual novels. Yeah. So it's it's going to take like six months. But those are the reviews I really want to hear. It's like, what's the product hunt review on this situation? Totally, totally. Yeah, I mean, I really wanted people like you who you've obviously been like very steeped in this world. I wanted people like you to get something out of it. But I also wanted people who have never worked in this industry, who have never worked in New York, who have never been to Silicon Valley. I wanted them to be able to engage with the story also. And so I felt like I had to kind of walk this line between accessibility and inside baseball um, and kind of making the inside baseball seem exciting and accessible. Yeah, I think too that you touch on so much stuff about, you know, the millennial office culture that uh, people can relate to whether they work in tech or not. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I work at BuzzFeed. That's been, that's been like a big theme for me because I am probably like 10 years older than the average person who works at BuzzFeed. I've been working in digital media for a long time. Like, I am not like the character in my book who has been at home with her kids for five years and then she goes back to work and finds that basically everything has changed and she's 36, her boss is 26. So I, you know, I don't feel as alienated from it, but, but there is a definite difference in the way that I think people in their 20s um, engage with their workplace than there was when I was in my 20s. Um, how do you think that your life on the internet has changed in the last couple of years? Ooh, good question. Um, you know, I think I've gotten much more open, actually. Like, when I worked at Gawker, uh, which was like 2006, 2007, Emily Gould was kind of bearing her soul on the internet and getting a lot of shit for it. People were always accusing her of oversharing. And I think for a long time, I was like, oh, God, like, I was nervous that I was going to be accused of oversharing. And I felt like I was a very private person. And I didn't want to kind of be putting it all out there. And then that I, that kind of slowly dissipated to the point where now, you know, I do a podcast about IVF with my husband. Like, I am pretty much putting a lot of things out there. So I think that the, the internet has made me a more open person. And frankly, like, I feel happier now than I did before. Like, I think there is something very isolating about keeping yourself so private. Um, that's such a great note to end on. Everybody should listen to Matt and Dory's excellent adventure on Art 19. It's the best. Uh, if, you want, if you want to read something that's about tech, money, love, and ambition, uh, pick up Start Up a Novel and you won't regret it. Thanks for joining us, Dory. Thanks for having me. This was so great. Dory's book is out now. Um, came out April 25th. It's doing really well on the book charts, so pick it up. Awesome. Well... This felt like a great palate cleanser from the news and an incentive to turn off my phone and like read something on paper. I know. Let's read something on paper, but let's also pray about that the next time we get together, <laughs> everybody's in jail. <laughs> and by only, everybody, only I mean right people, people who work at the White House. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, James Comey fired. What's going on? Okay. okay. You go read a book. I'm going to go watch MSNBC and like scream. I'm going to put my head between my knees and breathe. Like that's uh, what's going on. And shit is crazy. He found out he got fired 
by watching television. He's in LA right now. Isn't I know before LA he gave story? a speech. Before he gave a speech. Before he gave a speech, but now he's like keeping his speaking engagements. He's like, fuck mm. it, we're doing it live. I'm so excited about this. <laughs> I can't wait. Can't wait for the memoir. <laughs> I know. Can't wait for the subpoenas to go out. Talk to you next week. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Fingers See you and toes. <laughs> See you on the internet and in court. <laughs> I know. Also, read books, people. Read books. Support your bookstores. <laughs> See you in your local bookstore. <laughs> <laughs> See you on the internet. You can find us many places on the internet on our website, callyourgirlfriend.com. Download it anywhere you listen to your favorite podcast or an Apple podcast, where we would love it if you left us a review. You can tweet at us at callyrgf or email us callyrgf at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook or on Instagram at callyrgf. You can even leave us a short and sweet voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. Our theme song is by Robin. All other music you heard today was composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. This podcast is produced by Gina Delvac.